You're listening to Advancing Our Church. Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. And I'm your host, Jim Friend. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining our show today. I just want to thank everyone for your great comments and support of our four-part miniseries on Catholic Schools Week. And I hope that you had a great and meaningful celebration of Catholic Schools Week wherever you were. And I just want you to know how much Changing Our World and myself, all of us, appreciate your incredible hard work. We are committed to Catholic education and continuing the great conversations that we had over the last four weeks. And in 2021, we will be bringing you more webinars and more great thought leaders and more people who are advancing the mission of our church through Catholic education. So once again, thanks for your support over the last few weeks as we have brought you, I think, some fantastic conversations. And if you missed it, it's not too late. Go back and rewind. Go back to our website at advancingourchurch.com where you can find all of our podcasts and the last four weeks especially of these great Catholic education episodes. You know, it's hard to believe, but Lent is right around the corner. And believe it or not, this is the second Lent that we are experiencing this pandemic. And I was talking with some friends about uh, the fact that Lent's right around the corner recently. One of them said, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't have to do anything for Lent this year. Maybe we shouldn't have to give anything up because we've already lost so much already. And, you know, for some reason, that really struck a chord with me. I did some praying about that in, in my daily prayers, and what it reminded me of was St. John Vianney. And St. John Vianney was the patron saint of parish priests. He was so devoted to the holiness and conversion of his parishioners that he was willing to do whatever was necessary to help them attain holiness. In fact, here's his prayer. He says, My God, grant me the conversion of my parish. I am willing to suffer all my life, whatsoever it may please thee to lay upon me. Yes, even for a hundred years, I am prepared to endure the sharpest pains. Only let my people be converted. Now, to a person without faith, this may sound crazy. Someone inviting suffering in on himself. It's human instinct to avoid suffering. But as Catholics, we know that our suffering is not pointless. It, it can, actually has a redemptive quality. Offered up to God as a sacrifice for others, it can be transformative. Even if suffering is not inherently good, it can produce good if we can endure it and allow it to purify us and make it into a sacrifice. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to think about the events of this last year, and I'm going to think about offering them up to God. And, and I invite you to join me in doing that. And I, mean, I know that many of you have suffered so much more than I have. Perhaps you've lost loved ones, perhaps you've lost a job, or perhaps someone in your family has lost a job, or, or something even worse. Know that I am praying for you. And know that if together we lean into this crisis, instead of shying away from it, perhaps that's what God is calling us to do, to lean in during this time of challenge and offer it up as, through an additional daily prayer, or maybe a reflection, or maybe it's a spiritual podcast. Let's all together, let's think about how God is calling us to use this suffering to save souls during Lent. And now, let's get to work. Our guest today is Father Frank Donio, the director of the Catholic Apostolate Center and a member of the Society of the Catholic Apostolate for the Palatine Fathers and Brothers. Father Frank is also executive director of the Conference of Major Superiors of Men of the United States, 
His academic background, teaching, presenting, pastoral, and administrative work are focused primarily around evangelization, spiritual formation, pastoral practice, and all in order to foster a greater co-responsibility and collaboration among all the baptized. Father Frank has an incredible and impressive background, which I encourage you to read on the show notes of this episode. Today, we talk about his work with the Catholic Apostolic Center and the Conference of Major Superiors, but we also talk about what it means to evangelize in 2021 and his thoughts on the upcoming season of Lent. And so, without further ado, here's our conversation. Well, Father Frank, welcome to Advancing Our Church. We're so glad to have you here today. It's great to be with you, Jim. Thanks for the invitation. It's been great to kind of get to know you and get to understand some of the the wonderful work that you do at the Catholic Apostolate Center as the director. And I had the chance over the last week or so to listen to some of your podcasts and listen to a couple of the resources that you have available on the website. But maybe uh, for those who aren't familiar with the Catholic Apostolate Center, you could, we could start and tell us a little bit about the organization, who you serve, and, and kind of how it got started. It's a ministry of the Palatine Fathers and Brothers of the Immaculate Conception Province. We were in a time of uh, of discernment in, well, it was, I guess about 2009 or so, uh, 2010. We were renovating our facility, which is just outside of Washington, D.C. in West Hyattsville, Maryland, which is a, our house of ongoing formation for our community. But it sits on on several acres and uh, really it was too big for just simply that that work. And so in our discernment, we said, well, is there something that we can do? Not only with that, but is there something also with all the digital world? And this is something that I had some background in. I helped to develop some websites and different things over time. But as we were discerning, we said, what what additionally can we do to prepare, uh, to provide for the church at this time? And out of our charism, which St. Vincent Pallotti, our founder in the 1830s in Rome, was talking, uh, created a group of lay people, religious, and clergy. He called the Union of Catholic Apostolate. And out of that came our religious community, priests and brothers. But this was a collaborative group that was about reviving faith, rekindling charity. And Pilate believed that everybody was called to be an apostle. Now, it was inclusive of lay people, which at the time was not exactly a, a popular concept. And so this group of lay people, religious, and clergy that did these works and also assisted the church's missionary work came together. And so what's a 21st century expression of that? And so that was where we started to develop out what became Catholic Apostolate Center, which began in 2009 with three mission goals. The first was to assist in providing formation programs around aspects of evangelization, helping active Catholics live as apostles. Or as Pope Francis would say, missionary disciples, those who are followers who are sent. And then to assist in greater collaboration among Catholic leaders, because unfortunately what we were seeing was just this these uh, disconnects at times, duplication. Pilate was not about duplication. He, When there were efforts that were working, and he had a lot of activity in, in the city of Rome, he was born in Rome, lived his entire life in Rome and his ministry, and died in Rome. And he was very connected with the church at its, really its, its highest levels, to people on the street. And so he would provide and work together with others, draw them together to take care of needs, or if something was working, he would assist in those needs. And so we wanted to do the same. And so we started to collaborate with 
the Archdiocese of Washington, with the USCCB, with various Catholic organizations, national organizations. And that's developed and really grown over these last years. Then the third area is to provide various types of materials and formation opportunities for members of the Union of Catholic Apostolate, which has now probably around 10,000 people around the world in 54 different countries. So that's the the point and the mission of the center. Amazing. I, I would imagine that that the mission really began to reach its full potential after Vatican II, when you saw more laity get involved. And, and I can't imagine a time in our church now, you know, 50 years later, when we would need a mission like yours more. Yes. And, and what we're finding is, is that that's one of the reasons why, you know, we talked about in engaging even further, because what happened was, is that as a community, when uh, Pilati died, the fullness of his charism in some ways was taken. And even the name of our community, our, the name was, our nickname is Palatines after Pilati, but Society of the Catholic Apostles is our, our real name. The church took that away and said, no, no, you're pious society of the missions, and you will do international missionary work, which we still do and do well and do effectively, often in very difficult circumstances where a number of people would not tread and go. And so it's a very impressive missionary work that we still continue to do to this day as a community. But in 1947, right before Pilate was beatified in 1950 by uh, Pius XII, that's kind of when you started to see more of this activity of the laity and Catholic action, lay apostolate being talked about more. And so we were given back our name. We were able to relook at our charism. Pilate was canonized after the first session of the Second Vatican Council. It was the last canonization of John the Twenty Third in 1963, January 1963. So yes, we we then took up. In fact, our general, along with John Paul II were the drafters of the schema of the decree on the apostle of laity. So a lot of our spirituality is actually in that decree. And so we were able to then take and now continue to really after the council, do what all the religious communities were called to do, go back and look at your founding charism. How is what you're doing today aligned? How is it not? So forth. And so we were able to return to the fullness of what Pilates charism was. Then when we got to the, you know, the 2000s, we're looking at this and saying, okay, what more? What more is there that we can do? Pilate always said, always more. So that's something then that we, we decided to do as a province. And then I was asked if I would be willing to uh, be the, the director and to continue that work. And I work with a fantastic team of lay people, most, most of whom are young adults. Most of the team is under 40 which is really a real gift because there's an opportunity to, to really engage them in, in leadership and in activity that serves the, the whole church, not just simply other young adults. And that's, that's been a, a great gift. Well, you know, uh, our, our podcast is about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. And, you know, as you're talking about the Apostle of the Lady, you know, it's another term that I've heard some priests and bishops use instead of the word stewardship. You know, so much of what we do as stewardship directors and some of my colleagues who work in dioceses uh, listen to our podcast, you know, they're all about engagement of the laity. They're all about time, talent, and treasure. And so St. Vincent Pilate sounds very much in, in tune with our mission as stewardship directors, as advancement directors. 
He was a great fundraiser. Yes, he was very good at, at raising funds, at sitting down with people and saying, look, there's this work and we need to and, and to mobilize people because he believed in what we would now call today co-responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that's why this this organization was so unique in Rome of the 1830s. You know, let's be realistic. The, the king of, of, of Rome was the pope. That, that whole center portion of Italy, right. the papal states. And so not only the, the ecclesiastical governance, but the civil governance. Mm-hmm. And so this was a, a quite a concept that, that lay people would have the equal place at the table in terms of this, this association. And so they would work together. He believed in what we would now call co-responsibility. He called it holy cooperation, mm-hmm. uh, in which we would collaborate and be co-responsible for what uh, what the church is uh, is called to do, but we all had a different role in whatever in in that that aspect. Sometimes some people will use the term apostolate in order to close out laity from ministries. That's not what we're talking about. There's wonderful lay ecclesial ministries, uh, lay ministries of these are you know often church professionals and so uh, people lay ministries of people who are involved in all sorts of leadership positions in parishes and and in other ways. But then there's also apostolate, which is, okay, you've been baptized. Don't wait for somebody else to tell you what to go forth. You, you already have the mission. Right. The mission's already there. And, and all of us do. And so we're called to just to go forth and do. But we do that in a way in which we're, we recognize we're co-responsible for the mission of Christ in the church. And so stewardship and, and the focus on stewardship, particularly over, you know, what, the last... 30 years or so, right. uh, where that term has become really much more to the fore in the United States, particularly, mm-hmm. is really an opportunity to, to live that co-responsibility in a significant way and not just use it as, well, here, here's kind of a euphemism right. for we, we want to we want your, your treasure. Right. But instead, no, here's a seat at the table and together we discern where we go. You say it so beautifully, Father, and, and I think um, for so many of us who have lived this this mission for a long time, you know, we come to realize that money is really the byproduct of a heart that is transformed in in Christ, right? That that money follows a spirituality, or giving our time, talent, and treasure follows that connection that we have with our faith, and then given the opportunity, as you're doing through your mission to use that faith to to remember our baptismal call and and to exercise you know our right as the laity to contribute to the mission of the church. Yes, and I think we're seeing it during the pandemic. And Places you, that are doing ministry and, and, you, and are doing mission, they're doing all right you know, usually from the financial perspective. The ones that shut themselves down, turn in on themselves, and I've said this in in very public venues and and when I've given presentations on missionary discipleship especially now that if we turn in rather than go out and go forth, even if it's digitally, we go forth, whatever way we can do that, people people take note of that. Pick up the phone, talk to the parishioner, talk to the person that we're engaged in in ministry, and then watch what happens. Amazing things happen. People are more willing to give of themselves in various ways because they see that effort to live mission is being done. That's true whether in the pandemic or not, 
But I think it's really shown itself in a significant way right now. Well, you, you lead me to my next uh, inquiry, my next question, Father. So tell us a little bit about how the mission has taken shape in the last year uh, through the COVID crisis. It's grown, It's been quite a, a working of the Holy Spirit, and we've been quite amazed. Very quickly, the team was able, because we, we're able to function as Catholic Apostolate Center online uh, in terms of, of remote work. So we don't need to be in an office setting. We have a number of people, but most of the team is part-time. And so people are engaged remotely and we have all ways to do that. And what we did was we, we, we got together, we discerned together and said, what can we do in response? And you can go to the center's website and see these tremendous COVID-19 resources and all sorts of all these webinar, additional webinars that we added. We also have our, the, the, an association with St. Luke Institute and their SLI Connect. And we have a number of webinars around self-care that we made available and, and would already were available and we added more. Uh, but we also added a number of spiritual reflections and uh, blog posts and podcasts and webinars, things even including work from home. We worked with the Villanova uh, School Business, the Center for Church Management there. And and had a webinar about the work from home situation. I worked with a church management class that I teach out of St. Joseph's College of Maine. And the students, the 17 graduate students, came up with different work from home uh, tips and different things that could be looked at. But also, uh, around, we, we tried to collate what were some of the best things that were out there in terms of what uh, diocese, other Catholic organizations were putting out and provide those in one space. That's one of the things that the center does well. Many times there's so many things that you can find and see in Google searches and whatever. Some of it is not very good. Mm. Some of it is not, doesn't really align well with church teaching, but it seems to. And what we do is that we, uh, we try to vet a lot of those things so that then if you go to a set of resources, marriage and family resources, or resources on evangelization, or vocational discernment, or COVID-19, or self-care, we try to provide some of the best resources that can assist people even more fully as they, uh, as, as so they don't have to look even more deeply um, because sometimes they're far to hard to find, including on the Bishop's Conference website or the Vatican's website, things like that. So we have a large social media presence, and that also had a, a, a significant jump. And we just had started to have webinar after webinar and uh, large continue to have large attendance at those. What's some of the feedback that you're hearing uh, in the field, Father? What are some of the challenges that folks who are in evangelization and ministry are, are facing. I mean, some of the obvious ones obviously would be, you know, just that that not having the face-to-face contact that they normally would. And, and how are they overcoming it? I think the ones that are overcoming it are the ones that were already recognizing that they had to, to do, be innovative right. and to be creative and to move with the Holy Spirit right. in new directions and that they, that to move beyond the the, the seven last words of the church that also appear in Evangelii Gaudium, we have always done it this way. Mm. And 
that's that not everywhere. to say <laughs> they're not, not to say doctrine. It's not to say that's not what we're talking about. Right. But sometimes our approaches, and I think this has shown up, yeah. where some of our approaches have been very maintenance oriented mm. and not mission oriented. Right. Where we we just uh, okay, we do this at this time, we do that at that time. We don't, now we can't do this at this time. We have to come up with a different way in order to do this. And some people try to hold off and say, well, this will pass by the summer or this will pass by the fall. Well, it hasn't. And it's not. And it will be a number of months, probably into 2022, before we see some return to quote unquote normalcy. But the reality is we can't wait. We can't just hold. The Holy Spirit is offering an opportunity to us to be able to, to, to discern where we can go in, in, in particular ways. What I found that some of the more creative places are not even, not even necessarily the ones that have a high digital presence. It's just that they know how to reach out to people. Mm-hmm. And in a number of instances, it's through the phone, mm-hmm. uh, the old fashioned, the old fashioned phone, right. uh, or through flock order emails or that kind of thing, ways in which to keep connected but also to keep personal, to keep that personal connection with people. Um, and then in terms of the outreach, some places that have been doing live streams and so forth, people from various parts of the world can watch that. The evangelization opportunities, you mentioned some of our podcasts. Mm-hmm. We, When we're tracking that, we have been surprised. At, at, and this is true on our social media. I don't know why we were surprised. But the the listenership in various English-speaking contexts that you wouldn't expect, India, Pakistan, English-speaking Africa, uh, various parts of, you know, uh, Australia, places like that, um, that you, you know, you don't necessarily think of off off the bat, but but the reach, the digital reach is so much more. And I'm sure you see it on on this podcast, that the, the digital reach, you just don't know. Uh, where that may be going and what effect that has on people. Well, and the, um, you know, all of the parishes that are now streaming masses. And I've, I've talked to a number of pastors over the last six months. And what, you know, I hear from almost every one of them, I'm amazed at how many people are watching mass from outside my parish, from places around the world, places around the country, who, for whatever reason, they found, for example, my parish in Emmaus, Pennsylvania. You know, they, uh, they, they're reaching a little over a hundred sometimes on the streaming, but many of them are from outside the area. And they, they just, many people have found a home there and, and found a connection maybe in a different way than they did when they were face to face. Not necessarily bad or good, certainly not a substitute for being in person and live with the Eucharist, but, um, but still in all, you know, there's so many who have been able to move their faith forward in a way that maybe otherwise they, they found the silver lining. They found the blessing uh, in all of this. We also found that families, yeah. that's one of the things we've also provided resources for families because maybe the live stream doesn't, doesn't cut it for them. Right. And so what they're doing, are doing creative things at home, mm-hmm. creating spaces, having moments together of prayer with their family. Uh, and, and so, but they need resources in order to do that. Some dioceses have put together some significant and good resources that, that have helped families. Uh, even something as, as with religious education, rather than dropping off the child, well, now I have to do this at home mm-hmm. with my child. 
and and there there's been a connection we you know we talk about the parents being the first teachers of their children in the ways of the faith but this has given an opportunity for some families to be able to do that but they need the proper resourcing and this is where the parishes can come in this is where organizations like Catholic Apostolate Center and other organizations dioceses that can provide this this inform the these ways in which to do that at home. Yeah, I was reading one of your uh, one of your blog posts on on the website, Father, and you talked about pastoral self care, and uh, and and you know there, there are moments of self care that we all have to take a moment out of for ourselves, especially those who are feeding others or responsible for a flock. Uh, those who are especially like yourself in a vocation and do this twenty four seven. Um, are, are, are you finding, is there fatigue in the field, you know, and, and, and how are, how are pastoral workers, how are they finding time for self-care and, and what are your recommendations? I've been involved with sessions with lay people, with clergy, people involved in various church ministries, church organizations. And yes, there, there is a fatigue because they're balancing everything within their because they have uh, children at home or they have uh, isolation, uh, whatever it may be. And there have been some significant challenges in listening also to leaders, uh, leader, whether bishops or major spirits or religious orders. One of the difficulties has been sometimes the lack of self-care on the part of of some of the the clergy and religious and also lay ecclesial ministers uh, because they're trying to do everything that they can. And it's a beautiful thing. The difficulty is as similar to the difficulty that uh, I think any pastoral person has experienced of someone who is a caregiver, Mm -hmm. let's say for their spouse or for someone in their life. And then they're not taking care of themselves. They get sick and, and, possibly in some instances, I know I presided over funerals of the caregiver who's died right. before the person they were caring for. Oh. And when you have that kind, that's the kind of thing that concerns me is that, it, and when people say, oh, I don't have time. And uh, recently I was on something and the person said that, you know, oh, I don't have time. Well, when you don't have time for prayer, when you don't have time for the, for the proper care, I'm not talking about lounging. That's not what I'm, there's, there's important time to relax, but it is, but it is the type of self-care where you can step back and, and take a moment and take time for, for prayer or, or particular needs. The other thing that, that sometimes is on the rise or, or is addictive behavior mm-hmm. or behavior that is, uh, that is a manifestation whether it's anger, depression, all of these things that are really manifestations of of isolation or of uh, of overwork um, that's not being attended to, and so the these types of resources that we've provided and others have tried to provide are in, are in, are even more important in this moment yep. because. Some of the normal ways in which people could go about it, oh, I'm going to have coffee with a friend. Right. Or I'm going to get, you know, grab lunch, or, or we're going to go and do this this thing together. And that kind of that's gone mm-hmm. for a number of people because of, of the reality of the pandemic. Yeah. And for the sake of safety. Yeah. And so that creates even even more uh, an even greater difficulty as a result. 
Yeah. And so the pastoral person needs to be even more attentive to what, what am I feeling? What am I doing? Am I praying? What, what of those things are happening? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, on a personal note, so yeah, you know, part of I'm, I'm studying for a vocation for the permanent diaconate and, mm-hmm. um, as a as a lay person moving into that process, I was not in the custom of doing uh, liturgy of the hours, doing morning and evening prayer. And so uh, I've found that since I've been home, I've been able to do that with my wife. Uh, so we do morning prayer together. And that's something that we mm-hmm. hadn't done before um, on a regular basis. Certainly we prayed together, prayed together as a family. But now every morning before we start our day, we spend time in morning prayer. And it's a way obviously for us to grow closer together, for us to be in the presence of the Lord. But it's also been a way for her to be a part of my vocation journey. You know, it's a way of including her. Um, in the evening, I uh, most evenings, I jump on a, on a conference call with a group of guys, and we do mm-hmm. evening prayer. We're all, we're all diaconate candidates together. And so it's a way of us staying in touch, even though we don't get to see each other in class. We're doing all of our classes are virtual and online. But it's been a way to build community. It's been a way to support each other. Sometimes there's a little conversation before, after the prayer, and uh, and build that spirituality. So I, I I completely agree, and I think I think the isolation piece can be the most difficult challenge. But being creative and and looking for ways like your the, the services that you offer, or looking around your own life, your own community, including some if you're feeling this way, the odds are somebody close to you is probably feeling in a similar way. And there's a way that you can overcome it. I want to talk just for a moment uh, about your other full-time job <laughs> with the Conference of Major Superiors of Men. I know you're the executive director, and uh, it encompasses uh, religious orders, uh, I believe, all over the country, all over the all over the world. Correct me if I'm wrong. And tell us a little bit about that organization. Uh, I know it's leaders of, of religious orders around the country, and all of you with a different charism and, and a different history and coming together for the betterment of our church and some coordinated ministry. But tell us a little bit about that. Well, back in the 1950s, Pope Pius XII requested that these conferences be created of religious. And so in 1954, the Conference of Major Superiors of Men was created, and then it, was, it received a pontifical approbation in 1959. So it's been around for, for a number of years now. The purpose was to be able to assist the leaders of religious communities and then also to be a resource, but also to promote religious life, male religious life in particular. And so this includes the monasteries that are here in the United States. It includes the various types of communities, kind of you name the habit, they, we, they're, they're, they're a part of CMSM. And we, we run the gamut, including very new communities that are a part of CMSM. And this is a, an association of the leaders. So what we call the major superiors. These are the, the men who are in this leadership role in some ways, because they're what's called an ordinary, they're equivalent in the time that they're in office to a bishop, in that they have responsibility, particular responsibility. We do have some who are generals. For example, communities such as the Missionary Servants of the Most Holy Trinity, or the Paulists, or the Glen Mary Home Missioners, or the Marinals, communities that were founded here in the United States. Some of them have international dimensions now as well. 
their major superior, their general, is here in the United States. Uh, the women's groups have actually more of these these types of leaders than the men do in the United States in terms of the at the general level. And they have a dual membership. There's an international organization based in Rome for the superiors general. There's two of them, one for men, one for women. The one here we have for, for men, and it, it runs the range of communities. Uh, we provide in, in we provide particularly leadership development and, and resources in, in that area. We provide around safeguarding. Most specifically, that's a, that's been a very important aspect of what we've been engaged in, particularly over the last 20 years. We also provide around justice, peace and integrity of creation. But we also have standing committees that are dealing around formation and vocation, not just simply initial formation, but also ongoing formation of, of members. And so we do that. We also have, we're broken down into six regions in the United States. And we have regional meetings of leaders. We also have a national assembly once a year. Uh, we have a number of webinars around the three areas that I was I was talking about. And now we're adding others uh, as well in some of the other areas that we're, we're developing. Uh, we uh, have a board and a president. Our president is uh, Father Adam Gregory Gonzalez, who's a Discalced Carmelite on, uh, on the West Coast uh, in California. I got involved. I knew about CMSM. I had had interest and so forth. But I've been involved in provincial leadership in my own community now for 18 years. And most of that time, I've either been the vicar provincial or the provincial. Currently, I'm the vicar provincial or first consultant. When I became the provincial, I went to CMSM to the office, which was nearby where I was living. And it was then in Silver Spring. It's now in Greenbelt, Maryland. I sat down with the executive director and said, tell me, let the t- tell me about this this role. And we had a really good conversation. He was very helpful, Father John Pavlik, who's a, a Capuchin. And then I started to get involved. I started to just show up. And then the next thing you know, when you show up, you're on a committee. And then the next thing you know, you're you're elected to, you know, an office or board. In this case, I was elected to the board. Uh, and then I was on a search committee. And then it was, you know, we really need, and would you take interim? And then it's <laughs> it moves then works. from there, and that's and that's what happened. I find it a very pastoral role, yeah. uh, because I work with the major superiors, listening to what's going on. They are are dealing with a lot of challenging issues mm-hmm. every single day, as any leaders of these types of organizations are. But the re- reality is a little different than some organizations because these are folks you have for life. Yes, you've made a life commitment to them. And they've made a life commitment to you as a community. And you are the representative of the community as a major superior. So it's not as if you could just say, oh, sorry, we're ending your time or whatever we might do. We're moving you it's, on, right? <laughs> we're moving you on. It's a very different kind of relationship. It's like being in a as family. As a leader. Absolutely. How are you finding, obviously... Uh, Everyone is super focused in on vocations because of the of the needs that that are all over the world. Uh, certainly in our country, how are they finding vocation efforts uh, these days, especially amid uh, the COVID crisis? I'm sure there's lots of creative ways in which they've continued to recruit and engage mm-hmm. young men in those conversations. Well, in some ways, the COVID crisis has caused some men to do some uh, reflecting about what is my life, mm. where am I going, what am I doing. And so a number of vocation directors have found that inquiries are up 
wow. rather than down. Yeah. And many communities during the pandemic have had people enter. Uh, most, in fact, that that have regular streams of okay, and even communities that have not necessarily seen someone have seen some of that. So there is a bit of an uh, an uptick because it's a reflective time for a number of people, and so the vocation directors and communities that that again, similar to the parishes that we were talking and other ministries we were talking about earlier, yeah, the communities that are that are out there presenting themselves are very good at at responding and so forth and and then working with the person keeping in contact developing things that's where you you see uh the change because people recognize oh I really do need community mm-hmm. and something that's larger than myself mm-hmm. and so it it does create then a, a greater time of reflection absolutely from your bird's eye view and looking at uh, and talking with so many superiors and heads of these communities, what what are the top couple of challenges that they're having or that they have overall, whether they're COVID times or normal times? What what would be some of the challenges that they face? Well, everyone is, is uh, dealing with the personnel reality. I think we need to put that into context, though. There, We still have, as religious communities, as dioceses, particularly in the northern tier of the country, a lot of infrastructure that was created during a different time of church. And, and so now, do we stay with that infrastructure or do we start to look at, at a way, different ways of doing ministry? Some will wring their hands at the uh, around the personnel issue, but the reality is that uh, in that period, let's say from the 1930s through to the early 1960s, was an anomaly in comparison to the rest of the history in the Catholic Church in the United States when it comes to religious and vocations. Um, it, it used to be very small, and it's returning to small again. But it's also been a return to charism and a relooking. Uh, a number of male religious communities were in parochial assignments and and did beautiful ministry, or they came for immigrant groups of various types. Many communities are relooking at that and saying, or maybe it's been forced on them because dioceses have said we're not continuing this particular parish, uh, this particular parochial work. And so, thank you for your. 25, 50, 100 years of service, wow. but we're changing the, the reality. It's not a shot at the diocese. It, it just, it's to the rea- their reality as well. Of course. And so that change, or they say we're consolidating these things and the community says, we can't do that. We don't have enough personnel to be able to do that. Or their own particular ministries in schools, for example, the, many of the brothers communities are in healthcare. Uh, and there are a number of the communities that are involved in schools and healthcare retreat work and a variety of seemingly traditional ministries and others that are very much engaged in some of the, some of the areas like around immigration, mm-hmm. uh, particularly and migrants and the needs of migrants with the poor in a variety of ways with those who are on the, the, the peripheries, as Pope Francis would say, mm-hmm. and have made very much a commitment in those areas in justice and peace efforts. So most communities are relooking. Many of them are merging too. So they're merging together provinces. The other reality that's occurring is many of our communities, male communities are in communities of men are part of international communities, such as my own. Mm -hmm. And what's going on too are a number of international members who are coming to the United States and are serving also. We're seeing now more and more who are entering into leadership roles as consultants, as counselors, and as uh, major superiors 
And that's going to become more, not less. Because the, at their generalists, they're looking at it from a global perspective, not just simply a national perspective. Of course. Of course. That's amazing. Well, Father, as you know, we're quickly, uh, I, I feel like I just put away the Christmas tree, but it's uh, we're, we're fast approaching the season of Lent. This is, as you know, this is our second season of Lent in, uh, in, in a pandemic. And certainly last year we were kind of feeling our way through it and everything was new and fresh and people were reacting and, and doing the best they could. Now we've had a full year of this. And uh, and so it's going to be, it's probably going to, again, be a, a very different Lent. But um, I know the Holy Father came out with some things recently on some directives. Tell us a little bit about from your perspective, what do you think we can expect during the season? Some people are saying that uh, Lent has been all year. Yes. <laughs> and so they've had, Lent has really not gone away. Longest we, we, Lent we, of my we began life. Longest Lent uh, <laughs> uh, ever, you know, and rather than best Lent. Uh, you know, and, and so we, we have this, this, this sense of, of sacrifice, yes. of giving up that has gone on for the entire year. And so in some ways we can either lament that or flip it around and look at it as, well, okay, I'm actually well prepared to enter into Lent. And what are some of the areas that are still in need of ongoing conversion? What are the areas that I'm not at a point where I can be in terms of openness to the grace that Christ is providing and offering freely, but sometimes that we don't cooperate well with because we're so caught up in our in our own situation. It's almost like the parable of the sower and where the seed is going all over the place. And how is that ground prepared? And so for Lent, it's it's always important, I think, when I do spiritual direction with seminarians at Theological College uh, here in uh, in Washington, D.C., I always will say to them about a month ahead, okay, now what are you doing to prepare for Lent and to live Lent and so forth? Because they're in the middle of academics and so things can get kind of lost. And to look at the areas, the three traditional areas of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And fasting, just not simply about the giving up of something, but how is this something that I'm giving up? Is this something that is going to free me more fully? Is the prayer that I'm doing something that's going to be more, uh, lead me to a greater and deeper encounter with Christ? Especially if we're not necessarily joining together with the community of faith right. in the church, in the church community and for the Eucharist. And then in almsgiving, is it just kind of, oh, okay, I, you know, here's a few coins, but is there something sacrificial? Is there some sacrificial way, maybe taking that extra time for a person who's hurting rather than kind of blowing by? Uh, they're, they're hurt. You know, when we ask that, how are you? Do we really want an answer? Right. Especially now. Right. Uh, and, or do we deal, delve a little bit more mm-hmm. and, and ask and take that time to really listen? And, and then we, we know that there are so many people who are suffering at this time. Yeah. And, and if we are not in that level of suffering, what is it that we're doing? Is a moral obligation that we, I, I believe, we have to be in solidarity with people who don't have enough food and and who who are worried about their shelter 
and and uh, whether or not somebody's going to turn off the heat if the government you know changes uh, the rule all these kinds of things that people who are living on the edge and if we're not in that situation what is it that we're doing how are we helping and there's a lot of church organizations that we both know that can that are doing excellent work yep. in these areas and so how are we supporting them go full circle to pilates understanding if it's if it, if they're doing great work what do we what is it that we do to to support them and i you know in, in my own prayer life just thinking about so many who have suffered far more than I have, or my family has, you know, we lost someone to COVID this past mm-hmm. year. And, you know, we have friends who had lost their jobs or were on placed on hold and such that even happened to my wife for a short time. But, you know, just that idea of giving that back to God, that there is something I think in giving my suffering to God for perhaps the betterment of, of saving souls or for my own spirituality. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I think that when we give our suffering to the Lord, and we place it on the altar, I think that something special can happen there. I, you know, I, I look at, you know, over your shoulder and, and over mine uh, is, is Christ on the cross. Right. And, uh, and the, but that, 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 that there's also hope. And I, I think that we can, we can stop with the suffering and the crucifixion and not recognize that in and through are being united with with him on the cross and that that's not just piety that's not just a pious word but this is reality mm-hmm. and if we believe that Christ is risen and he is present in our lives now at this moment in this in in then there's hope it's very my confrere and, and I uh we we were talking recently and he, he's a, he's a priest of 55 years and has been in the community 60 some years and and is in his early 80s and he said i just don't know how people are getting through this without faith exactly he said i i, I don't know how they can, how they're doing it mm-hmm. he said i know how much of a struggle it is and i i it's the only thing that's really getting me through and i said to myself yeah i, I would agree and so I, I think when we when we take the the reality of suffering and recognize that that Christ is alive in our lives right now, and that we still need to proclaim that, and that things the 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 cross was not a period, but that the the Father try and 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 He was raised. Jesus was raised, and and so I I think that as we enter into Lent, we have to always remember that Lent's not the end. Yes, <laughs> it's Easter. It's to prepare us for. The the for Easter and for the are entering into the Paschal mystery, and I think this year has really been an opportunity for us to enter in an even more significant way into the Paschal mystery and uh, and the reality of hope, um, because we don't you know hope you're not going to know where where things are going to go, but there's a trust. Yes, it's there. Absolutely. Well, Father Frank, it's it's been beautiful uh, chatting with you this morning, just getting to know you a little bit better, understanding your mission. And um, I can see why so many tune in around the world to hear your ministry and, and hear your preaching and teaching. So thank you so much for your ministry. Thank you for this opportunity, Jim. And our prayers are with you and your important work as well. Thank you. And we'll leave uh, links to uh, Father Frank and uh, the Apostolate and the and the Conference of Major Superiors of Men uh, in the show notes of, of this podcast. So thank you again, Father Frank, and have a great day. God bless. Take care and God bless. 
I want to thank Father Frank for being on our show this week. I'm going to leave links in our show notes to Father Frank and his ministries so that you can listen to his podcasts and find the other great resources that he has available for you. And if you'd like to view the full video presentation of this podcast, please visit the show's episode page on advancingourchurch.com. Well, that's our show this week. Many thanks to the Changing Our World podcast team and the Pottery Studios for another great show. And if you'd like more information about our show, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, and we are a fundraising and social impact consulting firm that has been advising both nonprofits and corporations for over 21 years. For more information, please visit us at changingourworld.com. Well, that's it for me, everyone. Thanks again for joining our show. I hope you have a terrific week. Take care, and God bless.